welcome to Show Me Your Mic, the podcast about podcasting, which you can find online at goodstuff.fm slash SMYM, on Twitter at SMYM underscore FM. We're also on SoundCloud now. You can follow the links on the show page if you need to go there. Also, uh, iTunes, of course. I'm your host, Chris Anson. For this episode, I've got Sean Karaj, who hosts Nature's Past, a podcast about environmental history research in Canada, featuring lectures and interviews with authors and academics and other smart folks on the greatest country in the world, Canada, naturally. We have a great discussion about preparing for interviews, recording interviews well in advance, different techniques for recording roundtable discussions, that kind of stuff. My thanks to Feed Press for sponsoring this episode. Visit feed.press slash SMYM and use coupon code SMYM to get 10% off your first year of podcast hosting and analytics. More about them later on in the show. For now, enjoy my conversation with Sean. Sean, what got you into podcasting originally? What was sort of your introduction to podcasting maybe what you listened to first and then was this show your first show and sort of what's your history with podcasting yeah i was trying to think well how did i start i mean i think like a lot of podcasters i started by listening uh to podcasts and i listened to a lot of tech podcasts uh mostly and then some news and current affairs ones so i was a regular listener to uh, cnet's buzz out loud uh and this week in tech um and then the podcast from the cbc uh, and that I think got me thinking about what kind of podcast I could make. Which is it's funny because probably back in the day, like when this started, that there was just the podcast from the CBC. Maybe yeah, <laughs> I was going to say which well, one, but then yeah, obviously back then when we I guess I was listening to Quirks and Quarks a lot, right? Yeah, um, and then um, Search Engine when Jesse Brown was uh, doing that on CBC uh, and uh, Nora Young's show. Um, I can't remember. Spark, what it was. Right. Spark yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's if anybody like if you're into a tech podcast, I probably don't uh, pimp is the wrong <laughs> promote the Canadian content enough uh, for my CRTC license or whatever. But yeah. Nora Young uh, Spark on CBC, which is available in podcast form, obviously, and I'll link to it in the show notes, is a great show that's like just enough tech, but with culture, I think, mixed in that's makes yeah. it more interesting than like, here's what happened with Google this week or Twitter or whatever kind of stuff. So it's a great show to get a little bit, um, I don't know, yeah, like a different slant on on the stories that you already are hearing maybe a lot of in other tech shows. So Yeah, and the production on that show is very different from um, other podcasts, especially tech podcasts, which usually take the format of the four to five person round table running through a series of topics. The CBC podcasts, which are based on the radio broadcasts, are have a lot of post-production work done on them. They mix interviews with a whole bunch of different formats. Um, and that got me thinking about what kind of podcast I could make. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I, I should try and... I wonder if she'd go come on the show someday. I'll have to reach out to her. Um, anyways, the uh, your podcast, though, you do sort of more, uh, the, the few episodes I listened to anyways, you're about 40 ep- 48 episodes in. Um, you're doing more of the interview style discussion. Uh, tell me, I guess tell me the folks about your podcast, first of all. Yeah. And I'll go a little deeper on it. Well, my podcast is called Nature's Past. It's a Canadian environmental history podcast. Um, and so when I first started this, I was interested in learning how to record, edit, and produce a podcast. And I needed some kind of content to put in between all of that. And so I'm a historian of the environment in Canada. And I figured, well, that's something I know something about, at least. And I know some people who know other things about it. So I made that the the subject of the podcast. It uh, comes out four to eight times a year, um, usually during the academic year from September to April. And then I take a break over the summer uh, as I'm off doing other things. 
Um, and it, uh, when I began, it had sort of three formats, uh, a one-on-one interview, usually with authors of new books, uh, a round table with three to four, um, historians debating and discussing a particular issue and, uh, lectures. So recording public lectures that took place across Canada on topics in environmental history. That last format I've, I've moved away from, um, because I found that the recorded lecture wasn't particularly engaging, I think, for listeners because the audience for a lecture is not the podcast listener. It's a live audience in a room. And so it didn't lend itself very well, I thought, to a podcast. Was it something where, I was just curious if it's something where you were actually going out recording or is there sort of like an archive of, here's a, a talk so-and-so gave at this conference and here's the audio that you can republish? Or was it something where you were actually attending and involved in sort of recording? A lot of it was stuff I was recording myself. Uh, and then there were also other graduate students and faculty who were recording lectures that were taking place at different universities in different parts of Canada. In the end, what we ended up doing was archiving those lectures uh, on a website as something separate as we came to the conclusion that recorded lectures were really something different. They could be quite interesting, but I didn't think that they fit the the model of a regular podcast very well. Right. Yeah. And that's that's something, I guess, for folks who are, are curious about the podcasting medium, like you said, to start out with, it's kind of a, a great way to just like go with something you know, which will be easier to talk about than some random topic that <laughs> is maybe outside your wheelhouse. And, and definitely gets that level of comfort of just talking about a thing where you're not worried that you're maybe going to say something wrong or whatever. Not that we don't still do that, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and it definitely uh, is, is the academic world, I would guess these days it's probably fairly open and understanding of podcasts or is, are you still kind of like hitting up people and saying, Hey, would you like to come on my podcast? And they're like, what is that? And look at you like you're talking about world of Warcraft or something. It's a lot more open today than it was back in 2008 when I started the podcast. Back then, it was very new. Um, and so when I approached a potential interviewee or roundtable participant, I had to give the full spiel of what this was, what a podcast is, who the potential audience for it was. Now, especially among Canadian environmental history, this podcast is is a little bit better known. And so I don't have that uphill battle to try and persuade someone that this is worth his or her time to uh to participate in right <laughs> is it is it something where um like the site that it's on niche or niche-canada.org is that a larger project as part of um or like is not just you working on that site or yeah that's right okay. so there's a team of i think eight editors for the website um and they each take different components of the website so it has a blog called the otter um, and I uh, produce the podcast for the site uh, and do a little bit of editing and writing for the blog as well. And then it also provides news and announcements for uh, researchers in historical geography and environmental history, uh, as well as other uh, resources and tools. Um, so it's a, a fairly widespread uh, of content for that site, the podcast being uh, one part of it. We also do a video series, uh, monthly uh, look at environmental history writing on the web. Right. That's where yeah, I think Jessica DeWitt, who somehow I follow on Twitter, I think this yeah. is what connected us originally, because I don't, I don't have, make it a habit of going and listening to Canadian environmental history podcasts that often, <laughs> not that there's anything wrong, <laughs> which yeah. actually your most recent episode, coincidentally enough, is about, you know, probably one of the most important places in the world. Um, 
<laughs> certainly one of my favorite is Saskatchewan, the yeah. province where I live, I live and am from. I wasn't born here, but um, and so it was kind of an interesting little coincidence, I guess, to talk about or listen to that um, and hear sort of the, that the discussion of that. That's episode forty-eight of the show. Um, and so, are you doing? I'm assuming you're doing most of the interviews and stuff over Skype and, and connecting with people around the country, or is it sort of Toronto centric and then a few folks outside of that? It's mostly done over Skype. And uh, the reason for that, of course, is that the community of researchers is spread across the country at universities in every province um, and some in the territories. So using Skype is, is a lot easier for me than flying people to Toronto. We don't have the budget to do that at right. all. <laughs> um, but whenever possible, if I can get uh, folks in a room, it's nice to have an episode where there's either a one-on-one interview with someone who's in Toronto with me or a roundtable. Um, because I think the dynamic of the conversation is different when people are face-to-face. Um, on a technical side, recording uh, in person with people, I find, is a little bit more complicated than recording over Skype. Uh, recording over Skype is is much easier. <laughs> yeah, ironically enough, I know that's the... Uh, my brother-in-law was just here recently and we do another podcast together and it was actually more work and harder to set up a podcast to record him in the room than where he used to be, which is in like Western Australia. <laughs> like, yeah, it's easier right. to do <laughs> just that's technically right. and stuff. So uh, yeah, it's funny how that is. But um, do you, yeah. I noticed you publish the the show, uh, besides the website, obviously, you also publish a version of it on YouTube. And mm-hmm. is that, talk a bit about, I guess, why and sort of the technical challenges maybe or whatever in doing that and, and what you found as far as whether it's worthwhile for podcasters to throw their content on there as well? Well, I think the first thing is that when I was first publishing the podcast, I was trying to think of as many possible places where I can disseminate it. And in 2008, I started with the uh, iTunes podcast store or whatever uh, as the main place I thought that at the time people were getting access to podcasts. And then I had it indexed in as many podcast indexes as I could possibly find. Um, But what I realized over time is that, you know, the web is shifting ground uh, from underneath you at all times. So I felt like I always needed to um, push the podcast into different um, distribution outlets uh, at each opportunity, because you never know what's going to be the next thing uh, that shifts listeners. So I think iTunes is still fairly predominant in terms of the way that people subscribe to podcasts. But now that uh, I think more podcast listeners are listening on smartphones, iTunes plays a smaller role in that, um, especially for users of Android phones. Um, And so YouTube struck me as a place where people are are listening to stuff, not just watching things. Um, The other advantage to YouTube was that it's included as an application on all kinds of devices. You can watch a YouTube video on a Nintendo 3DS. You could watch it on a Samsung smart TV. And so here was a a media player that's basically everywhere. Um, And so if we used that as our embedded media player, then it was pushing the podcast out to virtually every web-connected device that exists. And the other reason I chose it was it... It's a really versatile media player. We were going back and forth on all of these different types of flash audio players to embed on the website, HTML5 audio players. And then finally, I just said, well, why why are we looking around for all this stuff when there's this one that's just dominating uh, web media right now? Uh, We'll use that. 
Yeah, and it's it's an interesting idea, and and the way you framed that actually makes a lot of sense because I was looking at the episode page. I was like, oh yeah, there's the YouTube player at the top, which is kind of neat. I mean, and you've seen I've seen you know WordPress themes or whatever that kind mm-hmm. of Im, Im, use that mode of throwing the video up top, and then I was scrolling down, sort of looking for the typical podcast player, but you don't actually have at least on this episode page. Anyways, it doesn't matter, but like you don't have that, and and just using that as a as the player, regardless of whether you get two views or fifty views or two whatever fifty thousand views on your video it doesn't really matter it's a free player that's Mm -hmm. pretty easy to use the only i guess it does add a bit of time right in terms of exporting a video versus exporting audio and then uploading that because you still have to make something in the video player aspect or whatever for it yeah it was a substantial addition to the workflow of publishing the podcast because i have to do everything that we would do for the audio version of the podcast then create uh, an mp4 video file with an image usually with the cover of the book the title of the episode um, compile that into a video and then upload that uh, onto youtube and of course the upload speed really ends up being the last mile for publishing the podcast <laughs> yes definitely <laughs> and i've noticed that too like with i've published some video versions of some of my other shows that are shorter in like you know a 10 minute show or whatever it is it still is, you know, an hour or sometimes depending on how fast your internet connection plus how fast YouTube is converting and, and stuff, and which is all like compared to five, 10 years ago is crazy fast, but still it does. Yeah. When you're used to working with audio, it, it just adds time. Yeah. So, but I first experimented with this with Google video in 2009 and uh, because YouTube back then would only allow you to upload 10 minutes. Right. Um, and Google video had a larger uh, time uh, maximum. Uh, so the first couple of episodes way back when lived on Google video just to see what it would be like. And the the workflow for that was much more complicated and the infrastructure for uploading video was not as good then as it is today. So I gave up on that pretty quickly until a couple years ago. Yeah. And I like that, um, that approach too with, with using YouTube as sort of a multimedia platform rather than like the distinction of well, podcast is audio, so you wouldn't put that on YouTube. And if it's a video, then you put that on YouTube and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. never the two shall meet kind of idea. But just for, again, like you said, thinking of the listener or the viewer as it may be, who doesn't care where the thing is from and doesn't necessarily want to have to subscribe and figure out how to get through iTunes and and that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. YouTube is infinitely easier for people to sort of understand and use. And I'm just thinking of like my Apple TV, you can just throw on the YouTube app and you find it and it's easy to go easy to subscribe and, and stuff on all the different platforms. So I know that's a conversation I had in a previous episode with a guest too, of of just would YouTube move in sort of the podcasting realm and sort of have a sub channel or a sub site the way they did with gaming recently and stuff like that. And they haven't shown any serious signs of that. And I guess they're probably making enough coin off the video. Not worried, but uh, as podcasting continues to grow anyways, we'll see if, uh, if they do something in that space, it'd be interesting. But if I could get it on Netflix, I would put it on Netflix. Yeah, totally. (laughs) I I keep waiting for Netflix to start streaming like, uh, you know, like Twitch gaming stuff where like, People are watching, yeah. obviously, you know, live streaming gaming. And obviously at this point now, it's probably too late almost for them to start adding that. But like my kids, I know, would eat up a Minecraft channel on Netflix, like just the same way they do the rescue bots or whatever that they're watching and stuff. Other shows they watch, they would just if there's a YouTube or a gaming channel they could watch on Netflix, they would love that as well, I'm sure. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see that. Uh, happen some at some point but yeah it it does bring up the point though of like okay there's us podcasters and you like we talked about earlier with cbc cbc has a show now i just heard the other day where they feature podcast segments typically it's kind of like the npr 
level yeah. podcast. Do you remember the name of the show? Have you? Oh, uh, if we don't, but sort of yeah, yeah. spot. But um, where they do feature podcasts, but it is like the more producer. They wouldn't just come to me and say, "Hey, can we put your hour long <laughs> rambling conversations <laughs> with people on this show?" But uh, but yeah, the media is kind of you know needing more content, and and here's all this stuff in the podcasting world, and and what better way than you know showing that even on through YouTube is another platform for people to find it and, and discover it. Have you made use of uh, some of the other stuff around YouTube, like Hangouts and things, to sort of incorporate into the podcast creation, or do you stick to Skype as a means to get the conversation happening? Mainly Skype for the audio quality. Um, there is, I, I've been looking into the idea of doing like a four-person video roundtable and then extracting the audio from that as an audio version and then leaving the video up as a video version. Uh, at some point, we might try that this year. Um, I've just been a bit hesitant about the audio quality that uh, Google Hangouts produces, but I think it's it's better than it than it's used than it used to be, and it's probably pretty close to to Skype's audio quality. Yeah, and one that I know if you're if listeners are in the sort of social media marketing um, whatever thought leader ebook space on the <laughs> web, one that's really popular that we just actually uh, Kyle Roderick, my good stuff partner, and I were messing around with last night is Blab, which is. Mm-hmm a terrible kind of web 2.0 name, but blab.im and the, it's a video and audio chat. It's kind of like, I've heard people compare it to like Google Hangouts done right. And Mm. you can have up to four people on and it's super easy for folks who are, it's like Google Hangouts is great if you're technical, but it, it is like a, a bit of a goofy sort of onboarding experience. Whereas this blab platform is great. And actually the, I forget what the technical, somebody out there is probably, it's like web RTC connection stuff anyways, where your audio, the, the um, gap in, what am I trying to say? The audio syncing in terms of what you see and what, when you stop and I, you, I stop talking, you start talking on Skype, that sort of gap sometimes that happens. It's that we noticed anyways, last night, much less of a, a gap in terms of your, conversation it felt way more real time um yeah. and uh and it's it's a neat little platform it gives you that sort of live chat kind of thing and um if i it feels like a platform that's building to be bought by youtube or somebody in vimeo or you know one of the video players online but um as far as an experience anyways for people who are new to the the that idea it's pretty simple to get involved and they actually what they do is they mail you an mp3 uh, mp4 video of the conversation and then have the replay on on their site as well so you can kind of it's an interesting place to experiment anyways if you're yeah I, I do need to play around with this stuff a little bit more i know that you know doing video production moves the the complexity needle up <laughs> yeah. much higher um but it seems like something like hangouts or something like this um is a way to kind of streamline that because you can also do the video switching on the fly as you're as you're recording and, uh, and yeah. you know, integrate visuals. Jessica and I have been using a combination of Skype and Open Broadcaster for the video series that we do on the Niche website. Um, and that's worked pretty well when you're using uh, doing a conversation with just two people. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not tried it with more than two. I'd be curious to see how that <laughs> might work or not work. But uh, so far, so good. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just like you said earlier with the platforms to like host your stuff on, there's just constantly mm-hmm. new, especially this like video, like Periscope, et cetera, Meerkat, all these apps and services that are trying to get into this uh, like sort of on-demand video conferencing space of some sort. And uh, rumor has it somebody like uh, this Blab platform, somebody hop- popped into our conversation that we were just sort of testing it out with. And they were saying that the 
co-founders of Blab or founders of Blab or whatever, the guy with the money anyways behind it is like in it for two years and then they'll decide if they're going to sell or whatever. So who knows what, mm-hmm. but I'm sure everybody has a price. If yeah. YouTube yeah. comes along and says, here's $2 billion. Can you go away now? <laughs> anyways, I digress. Back to your podcast. Um, the uh, one thing I noticed that you do with some of the music in, is uh, a resource, a couple of resources that is new to me anyways. Um, one was on ccmixter.org and the other mm-hmm. one was gemendo.com. Gemendo, yeah. yeah. Um, how did you stumble across those and, and uh, how have you been, is there other ones that are out there that, that was just one I noticed on a couple episodes, but is that kind of, those are new to me anyways. Yeah, I was trying to think of how I first found them. I think it might have been via like, maybe one of Lawrence Lessig's websites about Creative Commons music. Oh, yeah. Um, and CC Mixture came up. And then by searching through that, I came across Gemendo. So they're both two Creative Commons um, uh, music sources uh, where uh, artists upload their music as well as bass files and stuff for the music. So if you're looking to only use the instrumentals rather than the vocal tracks, you can pull those out really easily. Um, and the quality of the the production of the music on both those sites is is outstanding you do have to do a lot of searching to find the right stuff in there but it's uh, great and they're they're designed the search and stuff on those sites is designed uh for a, a bunch of different users but podcasters uh in particular yeah which is neat like often the online i found anyways the resource library is kind of designed for either like you're a big movie production with a budget and yeah. or it's like really amateur and this the I was kind of I was getting distracted. That's why I was late for the podcast. I was getting distracted, <laughs> kind of searching through music and stuff on there. And and actually, yeah, it is. And you know, like everything else, there's uh, your gems and you're not so gems. But yeah, yeah. Um, it's a yeah, it's a really neat service that I had never come across. Both of those. So just to point it out to listeners, yeah, and they've got lively communities too. I've been using both of them since I think 2000. Eight or Gemendo, I started using a little bit later, but uh, there's been new music, new artists constantly being added to those those services. Mm-hmm. And the I know this or look like the CC Mixter one, anyways. You just need to typically um, link back, like sort of for for credit, or yeah. how does it? Yeah, we put all the credits in the show notes uh, with links to the pages for the songs. Um, so that way, you know, listeners can go directly, not just to the artist, but directly to the song. So both those sites have pages for each song, uh, that's, that's posted. Uh, and then I think on CC Mixture, you can also, uh, like users who use the music can submit information about their podcast so that that can get added to the page for that song as where it has been used. Right. Uh, so yeah, yes. potentially discover your podcast another way or whatever too, a little bit, I guess that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of neat. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah, there's, I'm sure listeners out there have suggestions of other ones they've come across. Cause again, there's tons of those different little niche sites that you don't even stumble across until <laughs> just yeah. like this or whatever, but they're ideal for non-commercial podcasts, right? The vast majority of the creative commons licenses on those sites are for non-commercial use. Um, but I think Jamando now has a lot of artists who, uh, have sort of one-click solutions for pur- purchasing commercial licenses for their music as well, which I think just makes the whole process so much simpler. Yeah, exactly. And and understand that you're going to be using it. This isn't like, even if it is commercial, it's generally not like they're assuming you're a 
hundred million dollar Hollywood budget commercial yeah. <laughs> as exactly. well. Because that's again, most podcasters are definitely not in that space. Uh, <laughs> not this one, anyway. I just want to pause the interview for a moment and tell you about a sponsor of this episode. That is FeedPress. FeedPress is analytics and podcast hosting made for bloggers and for podcasters like you, Mister Podcaster or Mrs. Podcaster or Miss Podcaster, out there listening. FeedPress is a simple, intuitive, and powerful RSS analytics and podcast hosting platform. They feature powerful subscriber and download tracking, integrated newsletters, automated publishing to popular social networks such as Twitter and Facebook, a slick drag-and-drop podcast hosting interface, and everything you need in order to submit an optimized feed to iTunes. We use them here at Good Stuff. We use a little fancier CMS system, but we still host all our files, all our media files, MP3 files through FeedPress. With 250 megabytes of flexible file storage that rolls over monthly, you can easily upload four episodes per month, maybe more if you're doing a smaller show like my uh, daily-ish podcast. You can fit a bunch more episodes per month on there if it's you know 10 minutes or less or whatever. Upgrading storage is super easy and affordable, starting at just a flat rate of $20 for a gigabyte. If you go visit feed.press slash smym, today and sign up to try FeedPress for 14 days. You have no contracts, no commitments, and you can use promo code when you want to sign up during your checkout. Promo code that is SMYM, and you'll get 10% off your first year of service with FeedPress. Go check them out. Thanks to them for supporting Show Me Your Mic and good stuff. Now back to the show. So the uh, where are we here? You just you must be just ramping up into the podcast season for you now. As far as uh... yeah, it's editing season now. So in the summer, I I try to do a bunch of interviews and stuff. So I have a backlog of of content going into the fall. So we'll have our first episode going up next week, uh, which is an interview I recorded back in the spring. And then uh, um, sounds like just the way that you produce your your podcast as well. You've got the kind of main body that you've recorded, and then you add uh, you know opening credits, introductory remarks, and then a conclusion. Yeah, and so when you're conducting like that kind of gap, I guess, with between interview and then actually editing and production of it, how do you sort of frame, I guess, the conversation and and things to make things relevant and keep things interesting from, or not interesting, but like um, timely, I guess, from when you recorded it to now and whenever it's released, and um, and and yeah, it's sort of conducting that interview with that in mind. Or any tips from your experience? Well, I guess it's something that, uh, as a history podcast, I don't run into too often. Right. <laughs> uh, occasionally, we'll make reference to to current affairs, and if there's something really glaring that shows that the interview was recorded months and months ago, then I'll, I'll you know add a note in the introduction that we recorded it back in you know May or something like that. Uh, but most of the time, the interviews are timeless. <laughs> uh, I mean, one of the things about this particular podcast is I think it has an audience of people who are downloading the episodes right when they come out and keeping up with each episode. But they're also envisioned to be kind of archivable, uh, that there are resources that you can go back to. So I've tried not to include too much um, content that uh, expires. Uh, in I think the early episodes, I used to put a uh, a segment at the end that was a little bit more contemporary about resources and stuff that was going on. I thought I could have a news and announcements section, uh, but then it occurred to me that that would sort of diminish the longevity of the uh, of the episode since we don't produce that many a year. Um, and because of a lot of the listeners are educators uh, who want to use these in classes. Um, so having something that is focused on a book, focused on a particular topic for a roundtable makes it uh, reusable. Right. And that's, I think, just something to keep in mind if you're starting a new podcast is sort of what you might envision for the long term 
aspects of it and longevity and not that you shouldn't like if you're a current events show like we talked about earlier sort of round table yeah. tech show then obviously by all means you're you're gonna just have to do that but um but yeah if you're, yeah you, you have to think i think about uh format and the relationship to your audience so an, a news and current affairs format for an audience of historians and people interested in uh environmental history didn't make as much sense um and then i think the other factor that you have to add on top of that is your own labor um, so <laughs> yeah. your labor plus your audience equals your format. <laughs> there you go. That's a good format. <laughs> <laughs> Put that up on a, on a keynote chart or something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then, um, with the, do you, the process of actually getting the interview or the, the episode out, are you spending a lot of time sort of relisting and sort of crafting a, a bit of a narrative around the stories or like we alluded to earlier with some of the sort of NPR, CBC produced podcast or is it um, kind of like intro, let it stand on its own kind of thing and, and doing not doing too much editing of the actual interview content? Yeah, I usually let the interviews go with very little editing. Um, and sometimes I f- wish that I you know could cut in a little bit more. Maybe I record an inter, you know, uh, a uh, an interlude in the middle uh, where I sort of introduce the next topic that we're going to discuss. Um, but both for reasons of time and labor, um, but also um, for the interest of the interviewee, I don't edit too much. Uh, and again, I think this is where uh, audience and the topic for the podcast shapes the format. So um, most of the authors that I interview and scholars that participate on roundtables are used to presenting at academic conferences. Um, where they get up in front of an audience, speak their minds uh, without any editing. Uh, And so the podcast fits that format to some extent where the interview or the roundtable is a sort of podcastified version of of a conference experience. Yeah, that's uh, uh, talking, I guess, a bit about how you then edit. What kind of tools are you using? Go backwards from there to the gear and stuff but on the software side i guess what are you using these days to edit with so i edit in audacity um i did a little bit of editing in GarageBand uh when i was when i would record live with an interviewee or a roundtable i would record on a macbook uh, but when i uh, record over skype i use a windows pc so i use uh, end up using audacity more often than GarageBand. Was the Windows PC, not to make it a Mac versus PC thing, but just curious, yeah. is it just because of convenience and, or a better computer on the Windows side, or is there a specific reason to use that you found using Windows for, or Skype on Windows, I guess? Uh, it's mostly just me. I use uh, desktop Windows machines as my main uh, PC at home, and then uh, a, a MacBook uh, as my laptop. Uh, so I, uh, I cross back and forth between the two main operating systems. Nice. <laughs> um, there's no particular reason, I don't think, that may just be my own comfort with using Windows. Um, and the range of third-party applications for Skype recorders is a little bit wider on Windows than it is on Macs. Um, and I haven't been terribly dissatisfied with the audio quality, although when I go back and listen to earlier episodes, I certainly am. <laughs> yeah, that's a common refrain on here is don't go back and listen to your earlier Yeah, that's work. right. <laughs> Especially if you know that you've uh, improved gear or 
yeah, if, I think if you're over 15, 20 episodes or whatever, then uh, it starts to show its signs of uh, experience and and maybe audio quality too. So, yeah, um, yeah. that's uh, it is funny how they're in the podcasting world. And I don't know why this is. I'm sure there's if we actually knew the numbers, I'm sure there's just as many podcasters using Windows as there are Mac. But it feels like you get the impression that um, the podcasting world is Mac based for some reason. And the Windows users are like almost apologetic that they're using Macs or something. But um Maybe that's just my circles, I guess, too. But yeah, uh, Audacity's just been super easy to use as well, mm-hmm. um, and, and free, it, and nice. and free free <laughs> software as well. Yeah, very helpful. Uh, <laughs> and I learned audio editing on Audacity, and so there's a certain level of comfort there with that tool. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, and there's lots of resources. I think probably because it's free, there's lots of good resources out there for, mm-hmm. like you said, for learning on it and how to do little tips and tricks or whatever, and, and good community around supporting people using it as well so um and then going back from there i guess with uh, as far as microphones what are you using and then what do you use for like when you're doing round table stuff well i guess through two years ago i invested in a uh, yeti pro usb microphone um which has vastly improved the recording quality on my end uh, when I first started the podcast, I was using like a $12 Staples <laughs> microphone headset. Nice. Uh, and actually for a long time, that was the best quality uh, mic that I could get until I started looking into USB microphones, uh, which just produce better quality sound uh, to just have a, a digital signal. Um, and then I've got the mic here on a separate stand with a uh, shock mount and a pop filter in front of it. Yeah, nice. And that's definitely, I think for some reason, Yeti brand or whatever within podcasting circles sometimes gets slapped with the, uh, what's the cheapest one, the Snowball or whatever. Like it's kind of like yeah. people assume Yeti because of the Snowball or whatever sounds one way or whatever that people can't use any Yeti or whatever. But like, I think the average, uh, there's I'm sure there's podcast nerds out there, audio nerds who can definitely tell the difference, but uh, I'd be hard pressed sometimes to tell the difference that a guest is using on one show or another. My post production efforts, notwithstanding, as far as maybe degrade, degrading the quality or whatever, yeah. whatever my hack job with audio. But um, definitely, when I'm talking on Skype with folks, it's hard to tell the difference between some of the you know crazy expensive mics and and sort of consumer level mics or whatever. So um, yeah, this was sort of the the most pro you can get with a consumer friendly. Uh, product, I right. think. So, I mean, I, I'm always curious to hear what other microphones people are using, but I would, you know, highly recommend this one and, and the pro version uh, over the standard version because you get a higher uh, record uh, quality recording uh, rate on this microphone than the the regular one. I would not recommend the shock mount for this thing. The uh, it's not uh, uh, built for the weight of the microphone, so the shock mount will often dip, and if you uh, tighten it to uh, firmly, the uh, the screw that tightens it just snaps right off. Uh, so this is my fourth shock mount I've gone through. I will say, however, the good people at Yeti have graciously provided me with replacement shock mounts. <laughs> so I guess a bit of a plus minus there. That <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> so I probably once this one goes, I'll I'll go with another brand's shock mount. Uh, it just you know it has a, it, a standard input for screwing it in, so you can put it into any. A shock mount you want but if there are any listeners out there who are interested in half broken yeti shock mounts uh, i've got a couple there you go maybe there's a yeah a garage somewhere of, of yeti yeah. shock mounts <laughs> that's funny um and and then is that what you also use for like if you're doing a round table type discussion or what do you use then 
Yeah, I have now uh, recently just brought in the one microphone and kind of put it in the middle of the room. Um, and that's had a couple of advantages. When I first started doing face-to-face roundtables, I would have everyone with a headset, USB headset, going through a um, like a hub uh, and then recording as separate channels in GarageBand. And that was okay, um, except uh, this is, you know, People who are better at podcasting than me, just close your ears right now. But, you know, the sound would leak from one person's mic to another person's mic and you would get these weird echo effects. And it was such a frustrating experience trying to figure out what the best way was to record a group of people talking. And then when I got this microphone, it's got a kind of omnidirectional setting on it that you can just leave it in the the middle of the room. And then the only thing that's really governing the quality of the sound is the the extent to which you've got echo in your room. So if you're in a carpeted room or something, it it usually ends up sounding a lot better than when I had everybody with headsets with a lot fewer headaches. Uh, And then I'll back up the recording using just a handheld uh, uh, digital audio recorder uh, just in case something goes haywire with the mic. Right, yeah, which is a good good call. And uh, what are you using for that kind of device? I know there's a few out there, but oh, I had a use? Sony one for a while, but we just got a new one, and I can't remember the brand name on it. I haven't used it yet for okay. roundtable, but it's uh, it's it's really good. It's equipment from our department, so it's not my own. Right, uh, but if it uh, works well for the next time I do a live roundtable, uh, I will probably pick one up myself. And do, do you find a lot of? Do you have to sort of? Uh, are you grating your teeth anytime somebody sort of bumps the table with, with the Yeti Pro and you've got like, you know, in a room like that? Or is it good at sort of absorbing? Or how, I guess, how do you, how have you set it up and, and sort of how do you combat some of that kind of stuff? Because that's what it's, it's best when it can be on the shock mount and the stand in, right. the, in the center of the room. And then that way people can tap their feet all they want and nothing's going to get picked up uh, by it. Yeah. Um, I do have like a little list of things that I, often forget to tell people like turn cell phones off and if you're recording on Skype don't type on your keyboard while we're recording and and stuff like that so um, I have to keep keep, constantly keep that list of common things that comes up Um, the other issue with the headset microphones is they're so close to people's noses that they're breathing into the microphone (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's what I have have mine on you know it's a shock mount with a boom and stuff and I have to catch myself that I don't just start like yeah if you're talking about something and I'm listening like just start breathing into the microphone as I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it is, I think that brings up a good point though of like um, people often, uh, now I'm extra conscious of my breath as I breathe in now, but um, people often s- sort of are hesitant or timid in sort of informing guests about that kind of stuff. And I think often guests, especially if they're not all that podcast savvy, are, are kind of looking to you for direction and like tips and will be happy to, they won't be offended that you say like, please try not to clap or please turn off your phone or, you know, those kind of things and, and turn off your computer sound so we don't hear your email ding or whatever, or turn off Dropbox so it doesn't start syncing and kill the connection or something like that. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Especially at the beginning, if you've got that standard list or if you can email your participants a list ahead of time and then right. just do a, an introduction at the beginning, letting everyone know the ground rules that usually works. <laughs> exactly. And then, uh, and yeah, it, it just makes the show go better and, or the episode or the interview or whatever go better. And, uh, and everybody's happy because the audio quality is not painful to listen to or, or annoying or uh, distracting anyways. So, so yeah. As the case yeah. may be. So, um, and then, uh, any other, I know you're, you're using, um, Oh, what's the the site to host the podcast on? Um, Archive. Yeah. Um, yeah. How have you found it? Was that where you started on there as far as hosting? Or, and 
you stuck with that or was it something you switched to? No, we started hosting on our own server on the Niche website, uh, but then migrated over to archive.org for a couple of reasons. Um, one was reliability of the server. Uh, archive.org's uh, storage is spectacular uh, for podcasts that don't have huge audiences. I think if you were you know, looking at 10,000 listeners or more or something like that per episode, then you might be taxing the archive.org servers a bit more than is uh, what's fair. Uh, the other reason we put it on there was um, for uh, historical purposes. We wanted a place where we were archiving uh, this show uh, so that you know people in the future can have access to it. And that's exactly what the Internet Archive is for. Um, I'm also, uh, I hope starting this year, we'll be mirroring the podcast on the institutional repository at York University, which is where I work, um, so that there is a, a home institution that has copies uh, of it as well. And then that's integrated into our library. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that as a, like you referred to earlier about having guests on within the academic community. But as far as like the, I used to work at the local university just in the computer store and had a bit of experience with the tech community on campuses. And they kind of, sometimes they can be a little bit um, stuck in the old ways, I guess, <laughs> maybe somewhere. <laughs> and so uh, have you found, I guess, like the, you know, the media department or whatever on campuses and things to be sort of understanding of this new medium um, and supportive of it and, and sort of getting gear and, you know, things like that? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of faculty members who might identify themselves as digital humanists. Um, but the best allies, I think, at a university for thinking about digital projects are, are the librarians. Um, they tend to be really like in academia at the bleeding edge of, of what tools are available um, and new thinking in terms of open access and stuff like that. So the library is, at least at my institution, very active in thinking about digital projects, how to archive them, how to store them and make them accessible uh, for users. So we have our own institutional repository called York Space, where researchers are um, encouraged to store all of the digital materials from their projects. Uh, and so this podcast is, is one of my projects, and it should be stored uh, there as well as on archive.org. That's interesting. And so the university itself would be sort of funding just the hard drives. And I mean, space is pretty cheap these days, I guess. But yeah, yeah. And that's becoming a, a requirement um, for projects that are funded through um, the federal academic funding agencies. So the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada uh, and the, um, uh, the other three tri-council uh, bodies require researchers who get federal funding for their research to make the research materials available uh, in an open manner. And so the universities create their own institutional digital repositories in order to make that material accessible. Interesting. And do you see a day was sort of like where, um, I don't know if this is how this would work maybe, but like where podcasters, people who are good at podcasting, such as yourself or myself or other podcasters who listen to this show, where there'd be like a, a career track almost where they could get involved in stuff on, uh, say in the academic world where they're not necessarily a professor, but in the same way that there's, you know, IT support on campus, I guess. Or is it kind of more where what sounds like you're doing where you're on staff, but you also have this interest in the podcasting world and you'd bring that to the table or is, or is it sort of just amalgamation of all, all this that's stuff? A good, that's <laughs> a good question, right? Because there are skills that podcasters bring that are unique, uh, and usually skills that academics don't necessarily have. 
uh, both technical skills as well as performance skills. Um, and I think, I mean, you see this with the CBC, right? Quirks and Quarks is a really good example. That's essentially the academic podcast for scientists in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, but the host is not a scientist. Uh, he has skills in radio broadcasting and performance that are outstanding. And the scientific community benefits from that. It's part of the reason why I made this podcast. I thought, what, what would Quirks and Quarks look like for environmental histor- historians? Um, and so... I didn't expect that CBC was going to produce a Canadian environmental history show. So I figured I'd give it, give it a shot. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. That's a great way of looking at it too. And not that I'm job hunting, but just as we're talking, <laughs> the, yeah. the, I, I remember my days on campus and just, the, the, it is kind of like there, there does seem to be a natural kind of uh, connection there of yeah. what we're doing in this medium outside of academic world of interviews and, you know, just sort of building a, history and whether it's worth listening to in 20 years or not, who knows, but, um, I'm speaking about my own show, not anybody else's, but the, uh, yeah. And that, that world on campus, uh, on the university campuses and stuff of, of sort of, yeah, combining those two somehow. And, and there's probably stuff going on there, but I think you see some of it with, you know, podcasts, general podcasts about history or history book interview podcasts and stuff like that, where the podcast is not necessarily being produced by an academic, but academics are usually the interviewees or the subjects of the episodes. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else as far as the, your production of the show, anything that I'm missing that maybe is a key Um, component that you're doing? One thing that always comes up when people ask me about making a podcast and what goes into it is um, that the technical part of making the podcast is not actually the most challenging part. Um, It's the human part that's the most challenging part. So developing ideas for episodes and then coordinating the participants. Um, And I was especially impressed with the scheduling tools that you use uh, for setting up interviews and really would love to get something like that going. uh, Because for the longest time, it felt like the thing that took the longest time to produce an episode was identifying a potential interviewee putting in the request for the interview, scheduling the interview, and, and figuring out the best time for that. So I've been using uh, you know, email, of course, to uh, reach out to people, uh, and occasionally Twitter, um, and then uh, using doodle.com to, uh, as a scheduling poll to figure out the best time to record. Uh, but then I would love to be able to integrate the kind of calendar uh, application as well to get the calendar entry automatically added into a participant's calendar so that I know for sure that I'm going to be able to reach the person at the time that yeah. I need to. Yeah, and that's the what I'm using is a pointlet.com, which they've been gracious enough to let me uh, use it indefinitely here. I, I hope they don't remember that they gave me a free account <laughs> at some point. And not that it's that crazy expensive, but we all, like yeah. I said earlier, budgeting on a podcast isn't great. But yeah, so if, if guess I, I, I tell guests or potential guests or listeners or whatever, if they want to come on the show, just visit goodstuff.appointlet.com. I've set up a very specific time slot for recording. And obviously if you want to record and, and it doesn't work, then email me and we'll figure something out. But um, yeah, that, that actually like, I forget what episode it was. Uh, let's say it was 30 or 40 episodes ago. I was ready to quit the show. Cause it was just like, I, the scheduling part to me too, was like just such a hassle yeah. and I just want to do this, like have the conversation. And I stumbled across this tool and there's other ones out there. I know like this, where they integrate with your Google calendar and then mm-hmm. you can set availability based on that. And, and once it's booked, then it doesn't show up as an option, et cetera. Um, but once I stumbled across this kind of idea, I was like, Oh, that's like a time saver. Cause I mean, for you and I, like I tweeted you the link mm-hmm. and some people don't like respond to a tweet that way. Just like I'm sure you've discovered too, where they don't really 
care to respond. They want an email and have a private conversation about when and where and stuff. But for a vast majority of people, especially I have the sort of blessing of being talking to other podcasters who understand how to set up Skype and stuff. There's not a lot of uh, that part of it. It's yeah, it's been a godsend as far as just being able to use that and not have to worry and we scheduled this and I, th- I, I usually email people beforehand. I forgot to email you before. And so we just 10 minutes before the show or just chatting and, and it's, that's it. There's no scheduling hassle. So, yeah. Um, but the nice thing about it is my calendar sent me an email yesterday and then another one this morning. Right. It reminded me about it. So getting that kind of integration is, is fantastic. And the other thing I'll say for other people thinking about academic podcasts is again, thinking about your audience and potential participants. Uh, it's a profession that's not uh, necessarily uh, well, uh, tech integrated, let's say. Uh, so having a, a paid, uh, pro account on Skype is really helpful because you can make phone calls, uh, mm-hmm. in Skype and then record them, uh, directly on your computer. So the participant doesn't necessarily have to have, uh, a windows or, or Mac PC set up with Skype and a headset. Uh, and in some cases I get better call quality when I just call someone on a phone, uh, than I do if they're in an echoey room on a, on an old laptop. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I'm sure in, in your circles and I know in other s- circles as well, for people conducting interviews with somebody, going back to what we were saying about like, you know, ground rules for the podcast, sometimes they're like prestigious, uh, self, either self-important or, or actually important folks yeah. that you don't, you feel, you're kind of hesitant to say, can you just go grab a mic or whatever? And you, you're lucky to sort of get them in the room at some point and, uh, yeah. and you kind of got to deal with what you have. And, and yeah, that's, have you found the, um, I've always been hesitant with Skype just being in Canada. There's sort of limited availability of some of the services sometimes, but paying for the, the Skype out number and stuff hasn't been an issue as far as using it across Canada. No, I mean, I've been a Skype subscriber for years and years, you know, um, just to be able to make phone calls internationally and stuff like that. And so it was, you know, ended up being perfect for producing the podcast because then um, if I ran into any kind of technical hurdle on the part of a participant, uh, I could just say, turn off Skype, I'm going to call your phone and we'll do it. We'll right. do it over, over the phone. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's a, a good option to consider. And and that's where, again, going back to, I'm not in any way affiliated with this blab thing, but like it does mm-hmm. kind of eliminate that hurdle if they don't have a Skype account of like just they have to have an iPhone app. They have to have a Twitter account of some sort to sign in. I think right now it's still in beta, but, mm-hmm. but that idea of like, just punch it in or sign like put it on your phone, put on your iPhone headphones and we're connected basically. And, um, so yeah. anyways, those great services out there and there'll be, I'm sure more by the time this episode is released. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. The last thing I ask guests about is, uh, some of the podcasts that you listen to and the apps that you happen to listen to them on. And this is where my pre-show email would have come in handy. So I, to put you on the spot, I don't know if you have your app of choice handy or not, but Okay, uh, I've got I've got my two answers to this. My favorite podcast I'm listening to right now is Stop Podcasting Yourself, a comedy podcast produced in Vancouver. Uh, so that's a highly recommended one, and that's um, part of the Maximum Fun uh, podcast network. And the podcast app I'm using, I hate. Uh, so <laughs> it's a Beyond Pod on Android. Um, I shouldn't say that. It's fine. It's fine. It's just got some issues with like. Uh, randomly skipping. I don't think it plays very nicely with Bluetooth headphones. Uh, so I've been looking for a new podcasting app. But if you're looking for a podcasting app on Android that is okay and kind of annoying, 
beyond pod. <laughs> <For sure. laughs> I, I don't think they'll put that endorsement on the, on yeah, the probably not. <laughs> uh, that's probably not totally fair. It's fun. Oh, yeah. It's got a lot of good options on it. Yeah. It's fair. And that's what, like, I think, uh, again, just like we were saying before with Mac and windows, whatever platform, the same thing I think with podcast players is like, it's gotta be whatever works for you. And, and that's yeah, fine. And, yeah. or it doesn't work, I guess as the case yeah. may be. Yeah. And three years ago I switched to listening to podcasts on my phone. Um, I was, used to listen to podcasts on an iPod shuffle. So I had one that was just for podcasts. Uh, and then I would just sync that up every day with new podcasts. But eventually I was still doing that. And I just thought I am a crazy person. My phone can do all of this in like a 10th of the time it takes me to <laughs> bust out my little shuffle stand, plug it in and, and synchronize it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'll throw a little plug for my favorite, which I, I have never tried on Android is pocket Cast. Yes, uh, I've heard that's really good. Yeah, that's I use it on iPhone anyways, but uh, and, and paid for their they have a web service as well. So if I'm my phone is somewhere else, you can log into the website and mm. and synced playlists and stuff is on or play status is on there as, as well. So just my own little plug for them. But um, yeah, there's a, a plethora of podcast playing apps these days. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And this is what makes me wonder how influential iTunes is um, or if the podcast audience is being dispersed uh, a little bit more widely than it used to be. Because iTunes, you know, for the longest time was really the only place. Yeah, it still is. Like I know we found here at Good Stuff anyways, the the number one driver of traffic for sure. Yeah. And, and sort of the random drive-by, if you will, podcast listener yeah. is still definitely an order of magnitude higher coming from iTunes than anywhere else on the web, barring things like, you know, if you, your episode gets somehow bumped up on a Reddit forum somewhere or something like that, like sort of one-off things. But, um, but yeah, definitely it's still, but I, yeah, I think like I've discussed in this episode or in this podcast before is it, it feels like a change is coming unless Apple decides to really sort of double down and, and it, they've done it sort of the Apple style of throwing up something that was really good and simple and easy to use compared to what it was at the time. And now it's kind of just sitting there and yeah. someone else can come along and, and sort of do a better version if Apple decides to just sort of focus on whatever TV, I guess. Or whatever <laughs> thing is now. So, but um, anyways, we'll see. Um, cool. That's, those are just, that's a great, uh, definitely great podcast suggestion that uh, folks, they haven't heard the whole maximum fun podcast network is great to yeah. discover shows off of there, but um Definitely have a, some good Canadian content too. <laughs> Fulfillment. Yeah. And I, I should plug Exploring Environmental History, which is the first environmental history podcast by uh, Jan Ostuk, who's based in Australia. Um, and uh, that, of course, was an inspiration for my own podcast. Nice. Very cool. Um, all right. So, so where can folks find the show and, and follow along if they're curious about it? All right. Well, the show is at niche-canada.org. That's N-I-C-H-E-Canada.org slash nature's past. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Nature's Past, uh, and you can find us in iTunes and uh, on our website. You can get access to the RSS feed to subscribe directly. Very cool. Yeah, and I'll put um, definitely put all the links and stuff that we've discussed on the episode page here at goodstuff.fm slash SMYM slash 101, SMYM for Show Me Your Mic. Um, my thanks to you, Sean, for coming on the show, and uh, my thanks to... Uh, feed press for being a sponsor of this episode as well as possibly you if you support me via patreon i'd love to have your support patreon.com slash is where you can go to check out all the details and the various levels a buck a month or 50 bucks a month if you're feeling really generous <laughs> or anywhere in between you can uh, discuss this episode further if you want to follow the links uh, the link at the top of the episode page will have you right to our subreddit 
where you can discuss this episode further questions or comments on gear and podcasts and stuff that we've talked about good stuff's twitter account is good stuff fm i'm i chris on twitter and one more twitter account to throw at you show me your mic has its own twitter account as well s-m-y-m underscore f-m as always like i said earlier in the episode goodstuff.appointlet.com is where you can um, schedule yourself in to be on the show in a future date and time and if nothing works there for you feel free to email me chris at goodstuff.fm i think that's everything for this episode thank you for listening have a great day bye